Brothers and sisters, it's my joy and privilege to bring you God's Word this morning from Joshua chapter 5. And the text for the sermon this morning is verses 13 through 15. We'll actually read the text first, just to make sure we have the context for our reading from Exodus 23. So let's go to Joshua 5 first. I trust that most are familiar with the story of Joshua. God is using Joshua to lead his people as they uh, go into the promised land. By this time of the story, um, Joshua and God's people have already crossed the Jordan River. They are now camped in the promised land. And this event happens just before the fall of Jericho. So let's just read Joshua 5, 13 through 15, and then we'll go to our scripture reading from Exodus 23. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face on the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. With that in mind, let's turn then to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. So in Joshua 5, we just read those verses. An angel of the Lord appears. The commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. And in Exodus 23... We have the promise of God that um, the angel of the Lord would go before his people into the promised land. So Exodus 23, beginning at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I, give, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. 
You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So far the reading of God's word. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we know Reformation Day, October 31st, is a significant day on the Christian calendar. That's the day when Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That act, as most of us, I expect, know, sparked what we today call the Reformation, For hundreds of years, the church had kept her members in spiritual darkness, but praise be to God, he powerfully used men like Martin Luther and others like him to bring light to so many who were living in spiritual darkness. And we thank our God even today for what he did through men such as Martin Luther and others like him. Let's not kid ourselves, just because God used Martin Luther and others to bring much necessary reformation to the church, that does not mean that the devil simply laid down his weapons, so to speak, and decided to give up on trying to um, delude the church. Let's not ever become complacent as if Satan and his schemes are no longer a threat to the church or to us as members of the church. That Satan never gives up was true for Israel in Joshua's day too. That God's people are now in the promised land does not mean that the devil is going to leave them alone. And we shouldn't be surprised at that because already in Genesis 3 verse 15, just after the fall into sin, God had said that there would always be an ongoing spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent's. That battle congregation that rages even today, theologically we call that battle the antithesis battle. And you and I need to be reminded that this battle is not just a physical battle that we can see and hear. No, this battle extends beyond the physical realm into the spiritual. It's also a battle in which the spiritual world is engaged. Said better, better, better. It's a spiritual battle which expresses itself in the physical realm. Now, it's true that we perhaps don't think about that very much. But there very really are demons who, on the devil's behalf, are seeking to upend things for us as church and for us as members of the church. There very really are demons who, right now, are doing everything that they can to turn both the joys and the challenges of our lives into opportunities to make us stumble and fall into sin. Now all of that is what we have to see as background to our text this morning from Joshua 5. The battles that Joshua has to go and fight now that they are ready to conquer the nations on the west side of the Jordan, 
Those battles are not just physical battles fought here on this earth. No, the conquest of Canaan has everything to do with Genesis 3 verse 15, the battle between the seed of the woman, God's people Israel, and the seed of the serpent, the nations on the west side of the Jordan. It's a battle that is at the same time being fought in the spiritual realm. More, congregation, it has its origins there. There's that antithesis again. But praise God, brothers and sisters, there is one who, together with his vast heavenly host, unseen to Joshua and God's covenant people, is fighting for them. And that one, together with the innumerable hosts of heaven, that one's always victorious. So before the fighting begins, Joshua needs to be reminded of that. And as we, congregation, continue to live our lives as church, but also as individual citizens of God's kingdom, you and I need to be reassured of that victory too. So our theme this morning, Joshua is graciously reminded that the battle is the Lord's. We'll consider that the command of the Lord's army in the first place appears, secondly identifies himself, and finally prompts worship. So first of all, the commander of the Lord's army appears. If you've got your Bibles there, you can see it. Our text begins with these words, when Joshua was by Jericho. The Israelites are camped at this point in Gilgal. Joshua has walked the couple of miles from camp to Jericho. What's he doing there? We don't know because we're not told and so ultimately it doesn't matter either. This much we can say, God, congregation, he wanted him there by Jericho, that first city that the nation of Israel was going to have to defeat. And it's there that Joshua lifts up his eyes and says our text, and look, and, be, and looks, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. This is somewhat of a surprise meeting, and that's captured by those words in our text, and behold, a man was standing there, verse 13. And this surprise is only heightened by the fact that this man, our text says, has a drawn sword in his hand. And that right there tells us, that, tells us, tells Joshua too, that there's something different going on here. This is not just a regular encounter with just another human being. That this is some sort of special encounter is clear also when we compare Scripture with Scripture. Because this exact phrase, drawn sword in his hand, occurs only two other times in the Old Testament. The first is Numbers 22, verse 23. And maybe, boys and girls, you know the story of what's in Numbers 22, 23, 24 as well. That's the story of Balaam and Barak. And you might, might remember Balaam's donkey, verse 23 says, And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road, and here's that phrase, with a drawn sword in his hand. And the other time, the second time this exact phrase appears is in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 16. That was when God was punishing David for his sin of conducting a census of the nation. And that verse says this, translated slightly differently into English, but exactly the same phrase in the original Hebrew. The verse says this, And David, David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand, here's the phrase, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. 
And those two passages then refer to the individual with the drawn sword in his hand as the angel of the Lord. And that's very important. Our text, Joshua 5, doesn't do that. But this heavenly being does, as we'll see in our second point, identify himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. That's verse 14 of our text. And then add to that our scripture reading from Exodus 23. And there God promises, Exodus 23, verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. That's Exodus 23. We read that. So that there, congregation, that helps us understand who it is who appears to Joshua here in Joshua Joshua 5. There in Exodus 23, the promise is that this angel is going to go before God's people into the land. In other words, God had promised here in Exodus 23 already, before the conquest even begins, God had promised that his angel would be there to lead his people across the Jordan into the promised land. So, congregation, what we have is this. The appearance of the command of the Lord's army tells Joshua this much immediately. This is an other world encounter. This puts the whole conquest in the, in, of the land in an entirely different light. There's much more going on here in the conquest of Canaan than just crumbling city walls and flashing swords. There's much more going on here than just one nation, Israel, taking over the land of other nations. There's much more going on here than just the physical battle. No, this is in the first place, congregation, a spiritual battle. There's Genesis 3 verse 15 again. It's not just Joshua and God's covenant people who are engaged in this battle. No, this is in the first place a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's a battle of the spiritual realm being played out in the physical realm. It's one battle. And ultimately it's this, the devil and his dominion are working to overthrow God's plans for his covenant people, undo God's work and God's, the work of the host of heaven. And we see this congregation clearly in our scripture reading. Because look at what's so important or why it's so important that God's people totally destroy the nations when they enter into the promised land. If you've got your Bibles there, just open them again at Exodus chapter 23, which we read. Exodus 23. And have a look at this, congregation. It's verse 33, right at the end of our scripture reading. And what we want to see here is why it's so important for God's people to totally destroy the nations when they enter into the promised land. Look at verse 33 of Exodus 23. They shall not dwell in your land, that's those foreign nations, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So understand, congregation, what God is saying here. God's saying this, here's what's going to happen if you don't persist in that physical battle and destroy all those nations. If you don't persist in that physical battle, you'll end up, verse 33, you'll end up losing the spiritual battle. You'll end up serving their gods. Then the seed of the serpent will have won the battle against the seed of the woman. 
And we understand, congregation, it was the same at the time of the Reformation. It was much more than just Martin Luther and the other reformers trying to win a theological argument about some minor point of doctrine. It was much more than all the political and church intrigue that was instigated by the Reformation. It was much more than just the societal unrest that was caused as the Reformation swept through Europe. And all of that was real and could be seen with the eyes and heard with the ears. But we need to know that all that was seen and heard and being played out in the physical realm was but part corrugation of the spiritual battle that continued to rage. The seed of the serpent, the devil, and the rest of the fallen angels are doing or were doing everything that they could to stop the work of the Reformation. They wanted, wanted desperately to keep the masses in the darkness of Roman Catholicism. They didn't want the Reformation happening. They didn't want the light of the gospel to shine in the darkness of the world. And congregation, let's not make the mistake of thinking in terms of, well, that was all back then. But the devil isn't too active in our church, in our lives. Let's be clear, the devil hates every faithful church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The devil hates every faithful believer too. So at this point, congregation, we need to ask one question. Will you believe it when the Bible tells us that there is a spiritual battle going on in our churches, in our lives, in our society? To make it somewhat personal, will you believe it's true that when you are confronted with a temptation, you're not only contending with your own weakness, but also with the devil and his demons who very really want you to fall for that temptation, who are actively working to make you fall? Or congregation, will you believe it's true that the devil is actively seeking to cause division and trouble in the, in the church, trying to derail God's people with the goal of making them unfaithful? Or... Can you accept it that the devil is making his best of this whole COVID situation that we're going through? He's trying his best to use it to stop the church meeting, to break up the communion of saints, have people drift apart from each other. In short, will you, will I, will we believe it, brothers and sisters, that there is a very real spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and that that battle is still as real today as it ever was? We come to our second point. So Joshua approaches this man at the end of verse 13 of our text and he asks this man, are you for us or for our adversaries? Literally, the question translates as, are you one of ours or one of our opponents? See, Joshua congregation, he needs some further clarification as to who this man is. There's the drawn sword that speaks to battle readiness. And then as we've seen, Joshua knows that this man isn't just a regular soldier out for an evening stroll. And so he seeks some clarification. Who really are you? Are you on our side in this upcoming battle or not? But then, congregation, look at verse 14. There comes the surprising answer. No. He said, no. Is he neutral then? Where exactly does he stand? 
See, at the forefront of Joshua's mind is the earthly battle that needs to be fought. The city of Jericho is just there. He can see it and it needs to be conquered. And he's looking at this man with the drawn sword in his hand. And he's looking at him from that earthly perspective. But the answer here in verse 14, this answer no, confirms for Joshua that this man is not just some regular soldier. That means that he's not a soldier in Israel's regular earthly army either. He's not here to fight the physical battle alongside Joshua and his, the, and his soldiers. More, when you think about it, you realize that the answer no doesn't even answer the question as to which side this soldier is on. The answer no forces Joshua to think beyond this earthly realm and about the true identity of this man. And when he understands this man's true identity, oh yes, then he'll have his question as to which side he is on answered in a most reassuring and encouraging way. Says the man, verse 14 of our text, says the man with the drawn sword in his hand, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. For Joshua, that leaves no doubt that this being is a heavenly being. He's not human, even though he's appearing in the form of a man. And on the basis of Exodus 23, Joshua knows too that there is divine identity in this man. Because if, as we said already, this commander of the Lord's army is the same being as the angel of Exodus 23, who is to guide God's people into the promised land, then we know that this commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5, he is divine. Here is divine identity. Follow me here. How do we know that? Well, look again at Exodus 23, our reading. Exodus 23, verse 21. There Israel is instructed to pay careful attention to him, that's that angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Congregation, who does one obey? Who is it who pardons transgression? And the same verse also says this, for my name is in him. God's name is in this angel, this man with the drawn sword, this commander of the Lord's army. Who is this man then? Before giving a definite answer to that question, let's look at the last verse of our text, Joshua 5, verse 15. Because there Joshua is told, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Those of us who are familiar with the Bible recognize that as paralleling exactly what God told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And in that instance, we know that it was God himself speaking with Moses. So congregation, do you see it all coming together? Joshua and we along with him can come to no other conclusion that this commander of the Lord's army is indeed God himself, more specifically, taking into account our scripture reading from Exodus 23, 
as well as the other passages we've looked at, Numbers 22, 1 Chronicles 21, this man who is standing before Joshua with the drawn sword in his hand, this man is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who would come later to this earth and be born a man. What does that make this encounter, congregation? This is a truly incredible encounter. Because, says the pre-incarnate Christ to Joshua, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And that for Joshua makes all the difference. Here with him, just before the conquest is about to begin, is the commander of the army of the Lord. This, uh, that army is not an earthly army. It's Joshua who has to lead one of those. This army that this soldier with the drawn sword in his hand leads, this is the heavenly army. There is, congregation, always another army headed by another commander, and he's the commander of the Lord. It's the army of heaven which fights the battles on behalf of Joshua's army here on earth, as was promised already in our reading from Exodus 23. And that army... Oh, congregation, have that army on your side. That changes everything. And don't, brothers and sisters, ever doubt the existence of that heavenly host just because you can't see them. Listen to this beautiful illustration from 2 Kings 6. Actually, if you've got your Bible there, go there with me. 2 Kings 6. I want to show this to you. We want to go here, 2 Kings 6, to see... The reality of this heavenly host, we can't see it. But once God gave someone a glimpse to that heavenly host, 2 Kings 6. You might remember the story. This is the king of Syria. He's the enemy of God's people at that time. He wants to capture the prophet Elisha. And the king of Syria is told that Elisha is holed up in the town of Dothan. And so he, verse 14, this is 2 Kings 6, Verse 14, he sends there horses, so this is the king of Syria, sends there to Dothan horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. And then the next morning, Elisha's servant gets up and he sees that huge Syrian army surrounding that whole city. He sees it. And then... As he gets up, he sees that, that, that Syrian army. He says to his master Elisha, this is verse 15 of 2 Kings 6. He says, alas, end of the verse, alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha says to him, verse 16, don't be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then we read this, verse 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And then we read, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a picture. In that moment, the young servant of Elisha is given the privilege of seeing the vast host of heaven at work, busy ensuring the victory for Elisha and God's people. In that moment, 
Elisha's servant is given a brief glimpse into the spiritual realm. Well, congregation, then back to our text. And so Joshua is to know. There is, Joshua, a vast host of heaven commanded by the angel of the Lord. And this army of heaven, headed by this commander who is speaking to Joshua, he is going to ensure the victory for God's people. Yes, the victory of the seed of the woman over against the seed of the serpent. So we see then, brothers and sisters, how big it is that this commander of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua. Verse 14 of our text. And he says this then, now, halfway the verse, I have come. Now I've come. That means the world to Joshua standing there overlooking the first object of destruction, the city of Jericho. That means the world to Joshua standing there with both feet firmly planted in the promised land, but yet having the entire conquest of the land before him. Yes, he is the commander of the earthly army, Israel's army, but here now is the commander of the Lord's army. It means this to Joshua, I'm not facing this task. We, as earthly soldiers of God, are not facing this conquest in our own strength. No, the commander of the Lord's army, he is here and his army is going to fight and his army is going to ensure the victory. This battle isn't Joshua's, this battle belongs to the Lord. As the hymn says, In heavenly armor will enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us shall stand. The battle belongs to the Lord. So listen, brothers and sisters. We must first acknowledge and understand that in your life, my life too, in our church, in our churches, in our living within the context of our culture, there's much more going on than just the battle we see and the battle we experience. To make it real, we can debate at length what's currently going on with the COVID and all the restrictions. Are they warranted? Are they not? We can write emails to our MPs and our MPPs and other government officials. Or as church, we can discuss various issues of church polity, for example. Or in our individual lives, we can be wrestling with something as big as an addiction or some other ongoing sin. That's all very real stuff. It's all very tangible. It's stuff we engage in. It's stuff that we can hear and stuff that we can see and do. The struggles are very real. But know this, in it all. The devil is making use of his demons and he's looking for another victim. And if he can, preferably a whole church full of victims. It really is a spiritual battle. That's why Peter writes the way that he does. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober-minded, he encourages, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians chapter 6 confirms that there is a real fight going on for your soul, for my soul. A real fight going on for the faithfulness of the churches. 
a real fight going on for the freedom to worship together as churches, a real fight that involves us, congregation, yes, but also includes the spiritual realm. On the one hand, the fallen angels, the demons, but on the other hand, God's vast host of heaven. And yes, that should put us on guard. Yes, we do need to be watchful. We do need to be sober if we're going to be able to engage effectively in this battle. But listen then to this too, congregation. We live, don't we, after the time of the Old Testament Joshua, Yes, after the time too of the New Testament Joshua, Jesus Christ. And what did the New Testament Joshua do? What did he do, congregation? He came to this earth. He brought, you might say, the spiritual battle to the physical realm. He, the commander of the army of the Lord, the one who had appeared to Joshua on the plains of Jericho, he fought the most epic of battles and he blazed the path to victory by doing something entirely counterintuitive to the human mind. And something that at face value makes no sense at all. Because congregation, listen, as he hung on the cross of Golgotha, it sure looked like he had lost. He was dead after all, no question of it. The soldier, one of the ones from the seed of the serpent, thrust his sword into Jesus' side and that made it certain there is no life left on that corpse hanging on that cross anymore. It sure looked like the defeat of the commander of the Lord's army and if the commander of the army is finished, well, so too is the army. But no, congregation, no, praise God, no. Revelation 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him, that's the devil, by the blood of the lamb. Jesus' death as payment for sin means victory. And it's confirmed gloriously, isn't it? Christ rose from the dead. He did not remain in that grave. Peter writes it this way, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in Christ. Yes, the true seed of the woman, the head of Satan is crushed in him. It's him, the devil, who ultimately loses. The victory belongs to the seed of the woman. The victory belongs to the church. The victory belongs to you and me who are in Christ. The battle belongs to the Lord and he has won it. And it's that congregation that Joshua has to know. This is so much more. This is so much more, Joshua, than just you and your army having to fight it out over the various cities. No, this, Joshua, is about God establishing his kingdom. This is ultimately the spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpents. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, that battle is going on today too, here in our lives, in our churches, in our towns, in our province, in our country, on our continents, and yes, in our world. But what joy And what confidence we have to go and keep up the fight because the victory is already won. 
But given all that, what does fighting then look like for Joshua? If the battle belongs to the Lord, then what's there left for Joshua to do? What does it mean, congregation, for us then to fight in this epic battle? To answer that, we go briefly to our third point. Halfway verse 14 of our text. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua knows now who he is speaking to. He knows that he is addressing God himself, the second person of the Trinity. He knows that he has to submit to this much higher authority. And so, congregation, he asks a very understandable question. What do you have to say to me, Lord? What do I need to do? Joshua knows that he's ultimately under the commander of the commander of the Lord's army. So he asks, oh Lord, what do you want me to do? What orders do you have for me? And don't you, brothers and sisters, have the same question for the commander of the Lord's army? Lord, in this, this battle that's raging in my life, in our world, in the church of Jesus Christ, and yes, Lord, I understand now how high the stakes are, that this battle goes way beyond me, that this is ultimately a battle for the, the souls of your people. And so, Lord, we want to ask too, what do you say to me? And congregation, make it more personal. If you're fighting a real battle in your personal life, say with a, an addiction or with some sin that's just persistent, wouldn't you love it for the commander of the Lord's army to appear to you? And what would be your first question? What do I have to do? Help me. Just tell me what I've got to do. What strategy do you have in mind for me? You know, congregation, what the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua in response to his question, what do you have for me to do? Look at verse 15. This is what Joshua had to do. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. That is what Moses, Joshua's predecessor, had to do too at the burning bush in Exodus 3. We already referred to that. What's there for Joshua to do as commander of God's earthly army? It's really very simple, Joshua. It's very simple, but it's very profound. What's Joshua have to do? Just worship. That's it. Worship. It means this, Joshua, in all your earthly fighting, with everything that's yet to come, as you conquer the nations currently there in the promised land, just keep a posture of worship. In other words, remain faithful to your God. There's no need to go and make a covenant with those other gods, Exodus 23, our reading, verse 32. Instead, grow in your love and relationship with the one and only God of heaven and earth. Obey his good and perfect commands. Keep Joshua doing what you were told to do already in chapter 1, verse 7. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not, Joshua, turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. What is it all? This. Just worship. So brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a battle going on in our lives. There's a battle going on in our society. And yes, wherever there's a faithful church of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a battle going on in that church too. And we recognize now it involves much more than what we just see and what we just hear and what we experience. And yes, because the command of the Lord's army was victorious at the cross of Calvary. He does command the hosts of heaven for our protection. Question 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? Second says that answer, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. There you have it, congregation. He is fighting for us. So what's there for you to do? What's there for us to do collectively? Well, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. In other words, worship him. Stay focused on him. Be faithful to his word. Obey him. Keep standing in awe of him. That's what, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, every faithful child of God is called to do. Be faithful. Just be faithful and fight the good fight. That's our best strategy. That's our only strategy for this ongoing battle. And when by the Spirit's power in us we do that, then know this, congregation. The commander of the Lord's army, Jesus our Savior, he is fighting for you. He is fighting for us. And we know he's already won. After all, the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen.